This morning we're uh, <clears throat> going to talk about Noah's Ark. You know this classic children's story it was one of my favorites growing up. Most people are pretty familiar with it. Uh, the, the cool animals, two by two. You know, it's one of my children's favorites because they love to look at the children's uh, book Bible that we have. And interestingly enough, kind of funny, I heard that there's a new Noah's Ark movie coming out. I don't know if you've already heard this. Uh, supposedly, at least the rumor is, that uh, there's a, a new kind of modern twist to the story and that the real reason for the flood is due to global warming. Uh, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm reading you know, from the wrong sources or something, but I heard that, that there's that uh, aspect kind of woven into it. We'll see what happens. But, uh, but in reality, the story of Noah's Ark is actually not a cute, cozy children's story in reality. Uh, and it's not a story about the dangers of global warming, okay? This is a story, truly, about the sin of man and the grace of God and ultimately Jesus. You know, this is our epic series. We're trying to show how ultimately Scripture in all of the places points to Jesus, who is the hero of our epic story. And before we get into that, I, I want to just kind of give you a, a quick reminder of the importance of this epic series. Uh, I think sometimes we can be tempted to read stories from the Bible as if they're these isolated events. Uh, we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. You know, sort of a, a rambling collection of various stories and characters, moments sort of oddly uh, recorded by somebody who was just never very good at the connect-the-dots puzzles as a kid, right? Just a random smattering of events. But if you, want to, if you wanted to construct a road from one city to another city, you would not even consider laying the first inch of asphalt. You wouldn't even consider beginning the construction project without first determining the city that you plan on building your road to. If you wanted to build a road, for example, from Maricopa to Dallas, Texas, you would have to uh, lay plans very differently than if you wanted to build a road from Maricopa, say, to San Diego, California. Ultimately, the destination that you're headed for influences all the decisions that you're going to make along the way for that construction project. And the road, it may be built sections at a time in various places with kind of the engineering that we're capable of today, but in the end, all of these various pieces of that road are going to lead you from Maricopa to the intended final destination, right? Every inch of asphalt laid is going to be intentionally moving that road, intentionally taking you exactly where you want that road to go. Now, likewise, God is building history to his predetermined destination. Okay, from creation to the cross to redemption to ultimately the consummation of all things at the end of time, the history of mankind is really God's highway to his pre-appointed conclusion. Okay, before God even began the creation process, he knew the final destination. He knew every twist and turn that the road would take in between creation and the end of time. The Bible says that God is the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the Greek words that begin and end the Greek alphabet, which means that he is the beginning and the end. So even though he stood at the beginning of time and created mankind, he also stood at the end of time and determined the direction the road of history would take to get to its final destination. 
Fascinating, isn't it? Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, God runs the unfolding of history from its conclusion in the future. Okay? He is the great contractor and surveyor who knows exactly where the road will end. And what this means for us, to apply it to our lives, what this means for us is that any event in history, while it may not make sense in its appointed time, okay, for example, the death of a loved one, right, a, a season of suffering, loss, tragedy, pain, whatever those experiences may be that end up being hard, in the great project of human history that God is building from his destination in the future, it all makes sense. Okay? It all works to fulfill his purposes. The great preacher John, uh, John Piper, he puts it like this, if the ultimate cause of things, who is God, if the ultimate cause of things is running history from the future, then the ultimate explanation of things is found in the future. The bits of road that we see in our daily lives then, today, they're all making sense from the vantage point of God who sees the road in its entirety leading exactly where he planned it to. Okay? The resolution to our problems that seem unresolved, that seem insurmountable today, that seem confusing and unexplainable today, they actually have a resolution we can find in the future through Christ. How incredible is that? The things that you're going through are not new, spontaneous events in the eyes of God. Now, this is also true of our story about Noah and the flood. Because as it's written, this story really has no resolution in the three chapters we read in Genesis. Okay? It's sort of strange. The story that's recorded in Genesis verses, or chapters 6 through 9, it's really not a complete story in and of itself. Okay? To refresh your memory and sort of explain what I mean here, the story can be summed up like this. The world is full of evil. God despises evil. God wipes evil off the face of the earth by destroying humankind. He spares Noah, and Noah persists in evil. And if that's how the story of Noah's ark goes, if that's how it really ended, it does in those three chapters, but if that was the total conclusion, then it would seem that the purposes of God, the plans of God, are ultimately thwarted. Evil persists. Mankind still lives. Creation is still broken. God still hates evil. And ultimately, God still desires that his creation be redeemed, that man end up in relationship with him the way it was intended to be from the beginning of this story once again. He still wants the evil that separates us to be removed from his creation so that he can be fully in relationship with us again. So you see, that this story is not an entire road in and of itself. It's merely one stretch in the whole. It's merely one piece in this epic story. It has no conclusion by itself because the conflict of evil goes ultimately unresolved. And so I would say this story really only makes sense in light of the much larger epic story that God is unfolding from his throne of glory in the future, where all things, all things, 
have already unfolded before him because he's declared them to be so. Okay? And that's how I want us to look at this story this morning. Not as a lesson in and of itself, but as a piece of the larger epic story that reveals God's much larger plan for the restoration of his creation. So, specifically to the story now, right? We all know the story of Noah's Ark. God looks at the world. He sees a whole bunch of sin. So God comes to Noah. He tells Noah, build a huge boat. Put two of every kind of animal on that boat because God is going to blot out sin on planet Earth. And then God drowns the world in a flood for 40 days before he makes the waters subside and he sets Noah free in the world again. And wonder of wonders, surprise, surprise, what does Noah do? He promptly sins and shows us that although God cleansed the world of a generation that loved wickedness, the greater problem of sin and evil that was introduced into our story last week hitched a ride ultimately on Noah, on the heart of Noah, like a flea on a dog, right through the flood. So let's read Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth." This passage has some, some very harsh things to say about the hearts of men at this point in history, doesn't it? It's kind of one of those pills in Scripture that's a little bit tough to swallow. I mean, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, is what it says. And I find myself sometimes wondering when I read this, how close are we today to this kind of reality, you know? But the point here is that God created his creation good. This is not how creation was described when God initially created it. Remember, when he sat back and he looked at all that he had created, all that he saw, it was good. And mankind ultimately was the, the crowning achievement in the creation story. God's precious reflection of his very breath breathed into the dust of the world to make a creature formed in the image of God himself. And we were very good. We were very good. The perfect capstone to God's glorious cosmos. But then, as we talked about last week in the conflict, it was all ruined when evil burst onto the scene and Adam and Eve thought that the knowledge of evil that God had withheld from them that they could find in the fruit of the forbidden tree would make them more like God. And they rebelled, they disobeyed, they turned their backs on God, seeking to know what evil was about when God had spared them from it. And the result was disastrous. 
disastrous. Evil entered this good creation. It flourished like a cancer. It spread, it multiplied, it vandalized the good that God had created in the world. Everything it touched became marred by sin and evil. Which brings us to this description in Genesis 6. The hearts and minds of mankind, having become so corrupted by evil, that it's all they think about and all that they intend for God's creation. And here, it's here that we meet Noah. Look again at our passage of Scripture with me. Verses uh, 5 through 9. I'm going to read it one more time. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Zero in with me one more time as I read verses 8 and 9. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, I think we could be tempted to think that Noah here is the hero of this story. Noah was a, a good man, right? blameless before God. And I think we could be tempted to think that Noah was blameless before God before God found him. Okay, We could be tempted to think that in such a crooked and evil generation, God was searching the world for just one person who was good enough to use for his purposes. And he found Noah, who fit that description. Right, He stumbles upon Noah and, and says, here, here's one finally. But that's not what the text says. The fact of the matter is that the descriptions of the corruption of mankind found in Genesis 6 are, are all inclusive. They do not exclude anyone, not even Noah. And notice that the preliminary assessment of the evil in the hearts of men comes before we meet Noah. Okay? It's also restated after, but the idea of corruption on the earth is first introduced to us before Noah is introduced. Now, I believe Scripture is perfectly and divinely crafted in order to purposefully communicate the ideas that it contains, assuming that the reader can interpret it accurately. Okay? And in this case, I believe it's no coincidence that the evil of mankind is described before we meet Noah. Okay? There's a purpose here. And what the progression in the text reveals is that Noah, too, is actually wicked and evil. He is not outside of God's judgment on humanity. He's right in the middle of it. Actually, in the text, he is literally right in the middle of it. God assesses the evil of the human hearts. Noah is introduced. God reassesses the evil of the human heart. And so it begs the question, what sets Noah apart? What is special about Noah that he gets to get on the ark while everyone else is left swimming for their lives? And I would say it's only verse 8. Only verse 8. Which says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word that's here translated as favor is elsewhere in the Old Testament translated grace. 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Favor is actually the best translation for this word, but the point is this. This is a condition that Noah has that is bestowed upon him by God. If Noah finds favor in the eyes of God, it's not because Noah was a righteous and blameless man before God came to him. He is righteous and blameless because God came to him and bestowed his favor upon him. Again, notice the progression of the text. The world, including Noah, is full of sin. God's grace and favor comes to Noah. Then and only then is Noah righteous. And what this means is that we, like Noah, we don't find God's grace. God, by his grace, finds us. Understand this with me. Before you came looking for God, he was already looking for you. Trust me. And let's make no mistake about this because this lens of understanding will inform how you read all of Scripture as we go through this epic story. And it has potential, if you misunderstand it, to lead you into this initial sin of pride that brought the fall of man in the first place. Righteousness was not a precondition that Noah had that caused God to give him grace and favor. Noah was a sinner too, but God chose him. Okay, I would say that many Christian heresies have actually arisen by thinking that God chooses righteous people to give his grace to. That he meets them halfway, and he loves them because he sees a redeemable goodness in them. Okay? That's, that's not what the Bible tells us. Romans 5.8 puts it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Okay, the truth is that this epic story, it's not a record of good, righteous, amazing people making their way up to God. This epic story is a story of a good, righteous, amazing God making his way down to an undeserving people. Which is great news for me. I mean, I I don't ever want to speak for somebody else. I can't talk for you, but... This is great news for me. Because I know that if there was some righteousness required of me as a precondition of God's love and grace, I don't think I could achieve it. Okay, scratch that. I know I could not achieve it. Some of you were like, oh, I wonder. No, I could not achieve it. Let me tell you. I know I could not do it. I mean, so much better for me that God seeks me out in the dark and wicked places that I love to hide, to pull me out into his righteousness by no means of my own, than that I should be required to earn his favor through self-righteousness that I simply do not have. And while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He went there to bring you out. He loved you and redeemed you, even though you were far and lost. So back to our text then. I mean, who is the hero of this story? Is it Noah? And that's what I thought as a kid, right? It's Noah. He saves all the armadillos. Well, two of the armadillos. 
Is it Noah? It's certainly not Noah. Let me tell you, it is certainly not Noah. Since Noah was just like every other person before the, the favor of God sought him out. The hero of this story is God himself, who pours his compassionate grace out on those who do not deserve it. People like me. People like you. Because the, the, the lack of a real conclusion to this story it forces us to follow the road being constructed to a point in history, in the future, where we can find a real solution to the problem of sin that remains unresolved at the flood. The rainbow in this story is not God's promise that he no longer hates sin. Okay, God does not say, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky and just pretend like you guys don't do bad things anymore. It's not what it says. The rainbow, the rainbow is God's promise that the next time he judges the earth for sin, it won't be through water. And that's not the happy ending that we want from a story, is it? So where is the happy ending? It's found some 10,000 years later in Jerusalem, depending on the scholar who tells you what time the flood took place. Some 10,000 years later in Jerusalem, the piece of our road that's paved by Noah in the story of the ark, it forces us to look to this future moment in history when the favor of God, like it rested on Noah, when the favor of God, through the cross of Christ, calls to those who are far from him seeks out and rests on those who are far from God. In the story of Noah, evil is not defeated, sin is not overcome, but on the cross it is. In the flood, mankind is not restored to God's intended glory for mankind, but in the resurrection of Jesus, we have that hope. In Noah, wickedness is not overcome, but in Jesus it is. I mean, Noah gets off the boat and, and promptly gets blitzed on a fresh bottle of wine. I mean, how ironic is that? Where Adam failed, where Noah failed, Jesus succeeds. And so Noah is not the hero of our story. It's Jesus who's the hero. And Noah's ark is not primarily a story about animals marching two by two onto a very large boat made of gopher wood. It's a story about our sin. It's a story about God's grace that finds its real conclusion ultimately in the cross. And this story, like every episode in our epic story, it, it points to the story, which is this, the story of God bringing sinful, fallen human beings back into fellowship with him through the cross. That's what it's all about. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for this story. I thank you so much for your word that tells us about a God who's so heartbroken at the loss of his creation to sin, had a plan from the very beginning to restore it to the glory he intended for it. And I thank you that that plan was not to use Noah or me or any of the other characters in the Bible, but it was to use your glorious son to put him on a cross to pay the price for sin so that we could be redeemed. 
And God, I pray if there's any people in this room here this morning who are not living in that story, God, call them into this story. Reveal it to them. Redeem them here this morning. And for those of us who know this story, God, humble us. May we come before you with repentant hearts, remembering that you are a God who sought us out when we were far. And we praise you and we worship you for the, for the resolution of this story in the cross. In Jesus, who gave everything so that we could have a relationship with you again. And God, I pray that we would be people who live in the glory of that truth. That through Christ, we have been redeemed. Amen.